because when I was a kid, I didn't really understand, and I still don't really understand, the concept of having a relationship with God. <laughs> That's too confusing and a concept for me to this very day. But I can totally get this concept of having a day where all of a sudden life suddenly seems just imbued with more meaning and emotion and juice than before and being like, oh my gosh, I'm... I'm seeing the light in some way, you know, so I, I do, I, I do feel like I chase that. And I feel like BDSM is a realm through which you can chase that sort of religious kind of experience for sure. If you enjoy listening to Getting Better Acquainted, that's great. I'm really grateful to you for joining me on this journey through conversation. I make this show for free and that's how I want this show to be, a free show. But I do want more people to hear the conversation. So if you could share this with people that you know, that would be great. And also, if you could leave some iTunes feedback on iTunes, telling people that you like the show and telling them what it is and what it's about, that would also be really great because that helps to push me up the iTunes charts and all that sort of thing. It increases the amount of people who might hear it. Also... I've got the 100th episode of Getting Better Acquainted coming up next year, which is really exciting. In fact, I think we've probably had more than 100 episodes already because some of the episodes I don't number. They might have been two-parters. They might have been Getting Better Acquainted extras. I wanted to do something to mark the occasion of it being the 100th episode, and I finally come up with a plan. So... First of all, after episode 99, there'll be a week of Getting Better Acquainted episodes going from Monday to Friday, and they're going to be five live conversations I recorded at the Invisible Picture Palace, which is a glass house in Wapping run by In The Dark Radio. I did five really great conversations there in November in front of a live audience, so I'm going to put them in the run-up to the 100th episode. They won't be counted as numbers, though, because that's Getting Better Acquainted Live in New Strand. So what will the 100th episode be? Well, for the 100th episode, I'm going to throw a party inviting a lot of people who've been on Getting Better Acquainted and I'm going to play them some clips and we're going to talk about the show. I'm also going to try and get people who've been on who can't make it to send in some sound clips and I'm going to read out the email correspondence which people have sent in to me and there have been a few and I'm really pleased that people are reaching out to me in this way and this is going to be my chance to reach back and to acknowledge that communication so if you have something you'd like to say about getting better acquainted that you'd like to tell me please send me an email and I'll read it out as part of the 100th episode but also I'd really like to hear from listeners about what your favourite episodes are or any moments, specific moments would be even better of episodes that you've really enjoyed because that will help me wade through 100 episodes of Getting Better Acquainted. That's the plan. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of the show. And then we were going to record a story as well, weren't we, later on? Yeah, yeah. that's fine. That's great. That'd be great. We probably should do the, the conversation first, I guess, and then we'll know each other a little bit better when I get to this story business. <laughs> so you're recording on your side. Mm-hmm. Well, what's that? Are you drinking iced coffee in a pint glass? No, I'm drinking... It, it's not iced coffee, but it is in a sort of a pint glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, I am just so not 
like I don't have that queer eye. You know what I mean? I I don't like I'm not good at buying things that match or or <laughs> or, or the appropriate clothing. Yeah. So yeah, everything every everything in my apartment is rather random. I kind of I kind of uh, identify with that. My room's pretty random. My my house is a bit more tidy because I have a a partner who has a better eye. She has a good queer eye. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Hello. I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. So today we're getting better acquainted with Kevin Allison. Howdy, it's good to be here. (laughs) Well, it's good to be here in this weird kind of virtual space between New York and London. This kind of interesting way of uh, way of doing a conversation. I know it's so it is so surreal. I love it. <laughs> Before I get onto the the regular questions, I was going to ask: Are you okay in terms of the Sandy situation? How are you doing? Oh yeah, you know it's interesting. I live on the border of Brooklyn and Queens. And our particular neighborhood and the couple of neighborhoods around it were really not affected very much at all. Right. The only major inconvenience is that my main train has been down for a couple weeks now. So I've, I can't complain. I've been super, super lucky. But, but that doesn't change the fact that my parents are still calling me every day. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because first we had the hurricane and then we had a blizzard and, and I, at one point point I really had to tell him you know I'm still just as okay as I was yeah, yesterday yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, Lord. did you actually like see the hurricane happening or anything well I have no problem isolating myself and becoming a shut-in <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. it was very funny because I had there was this guy who was coming over from Paris who had contacted me on a... Uh, are, am I allowed to get rather explicit? Absolutely. <laughs> there was a guy who was coming over from Paris who had contacted me on a gay BDSM site. And he said, oh, I understand that you're very good at spanking. I want to be spanked by you. And so... I saw the pictures of this guy, a Korean guy, who normally lives in Paris, and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is like ridiculously beautiful. This is very strange that he's kind of like going out of his way to, to meet up with me. He he had seen some videos that I had posted on another site where you can't see me, right. but you like can get a feel for like, uh, you know, some of the things that I do. <laughs> Yeah. So it it became this race against the clock. He's like, "Oh my god, okay, the storm is supposed <laughs> to start really hitting at about 8 p.m. tonight. I think I can make it to your place by about 3 p.m. and be out of there in time." It was I had been coming from a festival, and so I'm racing to get home. He was literally here when I got home, so there was no time to like, you know, prepare or anything. <laughs> 
it was just this amazing like and then it was this be like we had the most fun and he was totally beautiful and it was like you couldn't have ordered a better spanking (laughs) (laughs) and so we had a great time and then he went off on his way and then for literally about the next 10 days I was just shut in my apartment (laughs) so I was like well I got one last thing out of my system right before becoming a hermit perfect timing perfect timing yeah it's so interesting to me like it turns out he's an academic he writes on the subjects of like religion and politics which both of which fascinate me so you just never know who you're going to meet out there and doing this podcasting thing is even though that's not how the two of us met i have met people that way too just because i talk so personally about myself on my podcast people will kind of go out of their way and introduce themselves to me and I, it's it's kind of opened my eyes to the fact that the more you open up about the quirkier parts of yourself, the more you you have no idea what you're putting out there into the universe. You know that that what you might be attracting toward yourself somewhere down the Absolutely. line. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've I've actually found that same experience myself with my podcasting as well. The more you put out there, I guess that's what I'm finding. The more I put out there the more I find people can take. You know, the, 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 the more real I get, the, the truer I get, the more I talk about really dark times and stuff like that in my life, the more people respond. It, 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 it hasn't, I thought when I put it out there, it would be kind of like people would judge me. But actually, I find that the more true you are, the less people judge. It's a weird thing. I don't know how long that'll last for, you know. The bigger things get, the more people are going to, you're going to get the opposite of that. You are going to get comments nitpickers also it's been a real education in learning how to deal with that my uh, risk putting out risk my show we started putting out the podcast in uh, october of 09 i guess and when i was on tv i was on a, a show called the state on mtv for from like 93 till about 96 sure, yeah. and During that period of time, I couldn't walk down a block without someone recognizing me, asking for an autograph, that sort of thing. Like toward the end of it, once we had been on TV for a few years, people were recognizing me all over the place. And I, it scared the crap out of me. I, I, I was very uncomfortable with it. I'm so used to dreaming about being well-known, fantasizing about it. Sure. But I'm also so used to like being in my own universe, literally walking down the street, talking to myself. That was one of the reasons I was so happy to come to New York City when I was 18, because I was like, oh my gosh, this is a place where I can talk to myself right out loud and very vociferously walking down the street and no one even raises an eyebrow (laughs) here. (laughs) So once people started recognizing me, I was like, oh my gosh, uh, now when I'm walking down the street, I have to be on. I have to uh, uh, impress people that, oh, I'm one of the more interesting members of the state. And I started getting all paranoid and judging myself and all that kind of stuff. So I was very fearful about success and about recognition. And I think that really kept me in a place of failure after the state broke up. It's one of the things that kept me in a state of failure for about 12, 13 years. So when I started Risk, it was really me saying, F it, you know, this is going to be me finally saying, 
I really don't care if you think I'm too gay or too Midwestern or too kooky or too friendly, whatever it is. Like, there, you know, there are aspects of my personality that are, you know, I don't know, big and <laughs> odd, you know. Yeah. And then there are other parts that are just kind of unexpected that just don't go with the rest of the package. Yeah. So I'm. I've spent so much of my life worried about what people will think of me, and I was very, very much so raised, especially by my mom, to be extremely worried about what people think of me. And Risk was a rebellion against that. It was my saying, no, I'm going to be whatever I feel like it on this particular episode. And people started writing in that they didn't like me. Now, that's not to say that we, I I would say maybe 95, six, 98% of the comments about risk on, like, say, the iTunes comments page are very, very, very positive. A lot of people, like, really celebrate me. They say, oh, this guy's quirky, but for a show that is so anything goes, it's appropriate that the host is quirky. But then other people write in and they're just like, God, this guy doesn't sound at all like an NPR host. He doesn't sound yeah. like he's drinking chamomile tea and reading Emily Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, absolutely. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, actually. One of the, the things that you do when you, in your intros and uh, in between stories is you, you might be stoned or whatever. You might talk about the fact that you're stoned. You might, you know, you're, it's very, very personal. You'll kind of give context to where you're at and how you're feeling that day. And I think for lots of people, that will really engage them. But I mean, it is putting yourself out there. So if somebody doesn't really gel with that way of being, they are going to kind of be, I guess, turned off. But I mean, that's the the risk we all face, I guess, putting ourselves out there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about risk is it because it's a variety show and because on an on a regular episode of risk, you might hear a four or five stories. And then my hosting, I, I try to make that, I don't know, uh, idiosyncratic to me as well. And so I think that the show really kind of is a little bit in your face and saying, look, this might get tear jerking. uh, This might get hilarious. This might get X-rated. You never (laughs) know what's coming next. And the idea is to to say to the audience, you're just going to have to adjust to the next human being that comes on here Absolutely, and where, yeah. where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's one of the things I really love about Risk. And it's funny that what you're what you're saying about being in the state and all of that stuff because I know that stuff because I listen to your show and I listen to Mark Maron's show and I listen to various other American comedians doing podcasts. But being from the UK, the state were not on my radar at all. And how I found out about you is through your podcast, through Risk. And so for me, like, there, there are lots of people in America who know you as the guy from the state, and then they go, oh, that's the guy from the state's podcast. Well, I'm much more, that's the guy from Risk. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. I love when people recognize me as the guy from Risk <laughs> yeah. rather than the guy from the state. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the state was it, it was hard to completely own like, I mean, on a personal level, like be like, yeah, I did that because, in fact, you know, it was an 11 person group. Yeah. And there's a story on risk where I talk about how a lot of times people would run into me on the street and ask for my autograph. And in the back of my brain, I'd be thinking, oh, they're probably thinking, oh, he's not the most famous or he's not the one who's <laughs> in most of the sketches. So it's a little disappointing that we had to run into this one. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> It's kind of like Terry Gilliam, I guess, in Python. Like, he must have felt like that, but now he's a big director, you know? 
Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, sh- I should kind of address my, the, the initial questions that I have failed to ask so far that I always ask everyone. The first one is, how do you know me? Which I guess we're kind of covering in a weird way because you're one of the people I've spoken to who I don't actually know face-to-face in advance. We've known each other once before on video link-up when I was doing a sort of story for your show, Risk. And that's how we kind of know each other. I'm a big fan and you're someone who is interested in listening to my story so this is a nice combination (laughs) the second question i ask everyone is what do you do now and again we've sort of started to cover it but i still like to hear your answer what would you ask if someone asked you what you did at a party yeah well after the state broke up i spent like i said like about 12 or 13 years really at a complete and total loss as to what to do with myself i ended up one of those actors in New York City on a treadmill of just going from survival job to survival job. And those survival jobs can end up taking so much of your time and energy that you can really become a little bit too obsessed and distracted about just getting the rent paid. And I just, I was so fearful and I was so lacking confidence and, and you know, it, there was a lot of social anxiety in it. I think, that, I think that one of the things that makes a lot of artists so interesting is that they have this, these two different needs in them. One yeah. is very extroverted and one is very introverted. Sure. I, I think that there's a lot more of a battle going on inside creative people than other people quite understand. Part of it is just this desperate need to connect, to like share things and yeah. and see it resonate with other people. And then there's this also this need to just go, like hide, go off into your own universe and not not have to deal with, uh, you know, the mundane reality of like, you know, small talk and all that kind of thing. And there's also just this, especially in comedy around the arena of stand-up comedy, there's this, there's kind of a raw, competitive, anxiety-ridden feeling where it's not that people are mean to one another, it's just that there's this like, God, yeah, yeah, I've got to, I'm going to do better than you tonight, I think, you know, that this, this sort of... I don't know. Comedians can be very sarcastic and very judgmental and all these things. So it it is it can be a really scary place to fit in sometimes if you allow yourself to get into your own head too much. Yeah. But then once you start really talking to people, really trying stuff out, showing up on a regular basis, you find oh oh comedians aren't so mean after all. It's just it's mostly been all in my head. I've been so fearful about doing stuff. Yeah. I don't think that's just restricted to comedians i think that's generally a across the board creative person issue i mean like writers are all very suspicious of each other but actually once writers start talking to each other they they work out they've got a lot in common guess what they do the same thing that the, and musicians are the same and it is something that we're dealing with in ourselves yeah i really recognize those two different desires within the kind of creative person but i also find that the older i get and i wonder if you'll agree with this the more i find that that making good art seems to me about getting rid of my ego completely and actually standing there fully uh naked i guess in an emotional way on a stage is kind of how the way i'm going with it and that's what your show does as well but i think even in my writing i'm trying to get more and more open more and more true even when i'm writing fiction or even when i'm writing a song you know I think that that's just the, the point. The point. I very much acknowledge that 
a lot of what we deal with as artists is that we like to dig at our complexes. We like to dig at the things yeah. that obsess us, uh, the things that will probably never completely be resolved. You know, like yeah. uh, lots of my stories are about sex and lots of my stories are about God. And I have to remind myself on a regular basis you don't have to end this story by tying everything up with a bow because you're never going to be finished. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Obsessing and worrying about and being confused about God. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So yeah, yeah, it's 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 you you know have to allow yourself to show your messy parts and kind of just be okay with that on its own to be like, well, I was honest. I, I, you know, I may not have like, sometimes it's a little dishonest actually to try to end a story by being like, and so there's the meaning of life. And yeah. I totally mastered that. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel that a lot. But then the problem is as well, as a storyteller, there is also a really nice effect of having some reflection at the end that kind of that brings people in, and, and also for yourself learning something. So it is again, it's a it is a tension again between those two desires again. You know? Absolutely, absolutely, because that's another thing is that this tradition of telling stories it really is the life examined. You know, it really is like saying, okay. Where have I been and what do I make of it? And so there's something profoundly therapeutic about it. And for me, it's been interesting because I feel like I'm having a therapy experience in public. You know, I feel like like in front of my own audience, yeah. I'm like unpacking a lot of my baggage and sometimes i it, i think it does it does make me feel slightly more accountable for how i'm doing you know i mean it it makes me feel like oh Gosh, I feel like I really did figure out why I do some of these things in my last story. Am I going to keep on doing them or not? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've had that experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a weird one. Yeah. Another weird thing about this conversation is that unlike most people that I hardly know, I know a lot about your sex life. Yeah. Which, again, is because you, you share it out there on the internet, which is a great thing, I think. You have shared a couple of stories about kink camp. What is kink camp? There's a little bit of background that I've never completely explained on Risk, and that is that for nine years... I was in a marriage sort of situation. For nine years, we had an open marriage, but it was the kind, you know, like whenever you talk to anyone who has a polyamorous sort of setup with their partner, yeah. each couple has very specific rules that are just their own. And our rules were that we could have sex with other guys on our own, but that we would have to tell each other about it before and after. Like, you know, before we'd have to be like, oh, I think I might be getting together with this guy tonight. And then after we'd have to like check in about how that was and how we both feel about it. But the other thing, the other rule was that neither of us was allowed to go toward romance. Like, Ah, right, okay. We were allowed to have, like, casual encounters, but we were not allowed to then go out to dinner and see a movie with someone. Okay, yeah, no, I understand <laughs> the distinction, yeah. So for nine years I was like that, and the result was that, for me, I just liked going to sex parties during that period uh, because there was never any risk of having to go 
to dinner and a movie with someone, you know, you're in and you're out. So I got very used to doing that, which is great and which is fun, and I love it for what it is, but it's going to stay very, very on a plane of never very changing and never becoming an adventure if you can't really, like, start exploring something with someone on a more, like, interactive, personal level. There's no risk in it. <laughs> no, yeah, well, I mean, unless you're, you know, unless there's, you're being, yeah. you're not having safe sex. Sure. So when my husband and I broke up, my husband actually, our breakup had a lot to do with risk itself. I was about a year into creating the show. I was 39 when I think I told my first story on stage. And I said, I am not going to turn 40 without having a project that I feel really proud about and that I'm really, really pouring energy into. So it was turning 40 that like really kicked me in the butt and made me say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to force myself yeah. to have to start telling stories on a regular basis now that I see how much more I like it than other forms of comedy. So I, I created Risk. I mean, it changed my life. I began to feel like, oh, storytelling is like infinitely interesting and I can help people with it and I can teach it. And I was just so excited about having discovered risk. And it, another thing that was very exciting about it was that the premise of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. People would light up when I would explain that to them. Comedians would be like, oh, that sounds great. I want to do that. During the first year or so of creating it, I was very, very excited. I knew that podcasting is a place where you can pour tons and tons of time and energy into it and not make a dime. So I was very worried about, like, how am I ever going to monetize this whole thing? And my husband said to me after about a year of risk being out there, he said, look, I understand. You feel like you finally found your voice. You love this project. I admire it myself. I think you're on a great path here. But the income you're bringing in is now zero. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you've made risk your full-time job, and it's just unfair to us as a couple that you're now bringing in nothing. And I said to him, look, if you just you know hold out for a few years, we'll probably start bringing some stuff in, which indeed was the case. But he was like, no, it's just not fair. It's just and and I think there were other factors. I think that after nine years, we were uh, had less and less in common, and we're just not as powerful friends as yeah. we had been before. Not not as interested in each other's friends and each other's hobbies and all that. Well, one of the things that I think is, you know, like in 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 my time embracing polyamory and kink and everything is that I've come to like really re-examine a lot of society's attitudes about sex and romance. Oh yeah. And, sure. And, and I think a lot of people have this this attitude of if your relationship does not last forever, then it's a failure, then it's a bit of a disgrace. And uh, I just don't think that's true. I think that what, what my husband and I had was, you know, wonderful and valuable, and I don't regret it. And I look back on many wonderful memories and some really painful and difficult ones, but I'm thrilled that we had that experience. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, so anyway, the, 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 this is a long way of getting around to the fact that uh, when we broke up then, 
then I felt in my 40s this ability to kind of go back to the place I was in my 20s of total sexual exploration. Yeah, sure. And it worked very nicely in in went hand in hand with the podcast with Risk because with Risk I encourage people to I encourage my listeners to go out there and do things that are outside your comfort zone. If you ever find yourself saying, I might like to try that, but I'm a little afraid to, that that you probably should, and then have the guts to come back and share about it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that appeals to me so much about your show, because that's kind of my attitude towards creativity quite a lot. I call myself, sometimes I've been known to call myself a method writer, like go out and have the experience so you can write about it. One of the things that's so interesting about all that is you never quite know what is going to happen with the little steps outside your comfort zone you take. Oftentimes you'll be like, oh, I think I'll try this thing. And then you start having crazy fantasies of, oh my gosh, this could be amazing. Or, oh my gosh, this could be totally terrible. And then, in fact, what happens is like nothing will happen for a while. Yeah. You know, you'll just be it's like, really, oh. really normal. It actually turns out that it's really, really normal being kinky. I, I kind of get what you're saying. Yeah, but then later you'll find that like three months later that you've met someone different because of having done that. Yeah. And that person will take you off on some totally different adventure. Yeah, sure. So the way the King Camp thing happened was this guy Jefferson, who is a storyteller in New York City, he did a Risk show, and he was talking about how he had uh, taken an erotic biting workshop somewhere. (laughs) And it was a really funny story. And I ran up to him afterwards and I said, Jefferson, where does one take an erotic biting workshop? And he said, oh, Kevin, I'm going to this kink camp in about uh, four or five weeks. You should come along. And so I... I said, well, I know I've told stories about things I did in my 20s that were, you know, imbroglios, you know, things that went very wrong uh, in ridiculous, funny ways when I was trying to explore (laughs) sex in my 20s. But I've never considered myself a kinky person, someone into bondage and discipline and sadomasochism and all that. But he said, Kevin, take a risk. (laughs) So I felt like it was the first first time that in a major way the podcast had kind of walked right up to me and said here I am I'm challenging you and so I did I I gave my credit card information to this kink camp place uh, the next day but after having done that I thought oh my gosh I should ask them who goes to this camp so (laughs) so I called the guy back right after having actually bought my ticket and I said um how many gay guys go to this camp And he said, oh, very, very few at all, (laughs) if any. He's like, it's mostly straight people. And so I thought, oh, my God, I am really going outside my comfort zone. Yeah. But I went to this camp, and these things are actually very prominent now. And it's because of the Internet. the, The whole thing, as I kind of understand it, is that Gay men, especially around about the 50s and 60s, really kind of like developed a tradition of leather and BDSM. And there are all sorts of rituals and role-playing things that happen within this realm. And it was very, very, very underground for years. And 
I think around about like the sexual liberation of the late 60s and 70s, I think a lot of straight people started to be like, hey, we're, you know, going to pick up on some of these cues, too. Yeah. So that by the time of now, when I was in my 20s, I would see leather daddies and I thought, I mean, I was a clean cut college kid. So I was like, oh, that's that's not me. I don't quite get that. Right. So I never really explored that realm. But here I was in, you know, a couple years ago being invited to this kink camp. And I go and I see that because of the Internet, this scene, this BDSM scene has exploded. There are now people from all walks of life who go to festivals and fairs and workshops and camps to try out things like rope bondage, uh, role playing improvisation, martial arts kinds of kinky play, all that kind of stuff. There's now a community, and the community has all sorts of like principles. Whatever anyone's kink is, it's okay as long as they're not harming someone. Yeah, ethical non-monogamy. Exactly. So it was just a total eye-opener going to this camp, even though I was like the only gay man out of about 450 people. Wow, that must have been, that must have been really kind of intense. Everywhere you go, it's going to be completely heterosexual sex in your face kind of thing. Yeah, it, it, it was a trip. It was a trip. But you know what happened? Because this year I went back, so it was my second time at the same camp. I was talking to a transsexual person about it, someone who was assigned female at birth and who has now had surgery on his man. And we were talking about the extent to which there is some gay play at camp. And he said, well, what's interesting is that even though guys who identify as purely gay tend to this day to still kind of ghettoize themselves, to still kind of like stay in their own little underground packs. Sure. Here at camp, because there's this anything goes spirit, you'll see a lot of guys who identify in their normal life as straight who are trying things out with other guys. And so the reverse started happening to me at camp. I was like, oh, in this anything goes atmosphere, I can start trying things out with women and also trans folks. So it's really weird. I don't think any of us is usually conscious of the extent to which our limitations and boundaries sexually are largely conditioned. Even if we don't think they are, we've grown to think, oh, I don't like that, I do like this, without giving a lot of stuff all that much of a try. And sure. so, yeah, so that that is one of the things that I found the like once I went to King Camp, I became completely fascinated and a little bit obsessed with this whole realm of BDSM because there are so many facets to it. There are so many, you know, games and types of play that people engage in that I'm really, really intrigued by it all, especially because people who people who take it seriously and take workshops and really learn how to like tie someone up or like hypnotize someone or screw with someone's head or whatever the whatever the kinky play you're into um you can have experiences that go way beyond anything like i'm i'm talking about like for the soul and and for the body you can have experiences that you never imagined you'd be so into and and kind of breakthrough life like experiences. There was a story on the show called Beyond Kink Camp Part 1. Yeah. yeah. 
That's, I think that's my favorite episode so far, but I'm enjoying them all. I had an experience with a young man who who did tie me up and all that sort of thing shortly after I went to King Camp the first time. And it became one of those somewhat out-of-body kinds of experiences. It became kind of yeah. a... Um, me going places I never saw myself going and just being completely wowed in in an almost altered state kind of way. And so I think that, you know, some someone said to me recently, hmm, now that you're so into BDSM, do you kind of feel like you're kind of chasing a high? You know what I mean? Do you feel yeah, like yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're like trying to find that uh, that crazy altered state experience again? And Sex is always chasing a high to a certain extent that because is it is true. physiologically an orgasm is a high. That's the that's why they're great. That's that's right. Yeah. Something I get from that story is that there's something almost spiritual in your experience with that boy. I and mean, with S and M in general, I think there's a, a very spiritual dimension. In my next story, my next long form story is purely spiritual. There's no sex in it at all. But I think that that is. It, it, very, very, very tied to what I'm about. I was raised very devoutly Catholic. And in, I mean, for for better or for worse, you uh, kids who grow up Catholic, or at least I'll, I'll speak for myself, I, I had this idea of, I was constantly being exposed to these stories of people having religious experiences. <laughs> and religious experiences always seem to be these extraordinary Stepping outside the bounds of the banal, ordinary reality where, you know, when all the stories of the saints, you know, someone's getting knocked off a horse and seeing the light and, you know, that, sure. that sort of thing. And so I always kind of, because when I was a kid, I didn't really understand and I still don't really understand the concept of having a relationship with God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 That's too confusing and a concept for me to this very day. But I can totally get this concept of having a day where all of a sudden life suddenly seems just imbued with more meaning and emotion yeah. and juice than before and being like, oh my gosh, I'm... I'm seeing the light in some way, you know, so I, I do I, I do feel like I chase that. And I feel like BDSM is a realm through which you can chase that sort of religious kind of experience for sure. Yeah, no, sure. And let's face it. I mean, you know, Catholicism especially. I mean, I, <laughs> I think a lot of religions are have, you know, this or that extent of like, S and M to them, but Catholicism is about as sadomasochistic as it yeah. gets. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I mean, as, as as a gay man, just looking at Christ on the cross must have been pretty hot. I think yeah, totally. You as know. a little kid, yeah, for sure, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for me, also part of the appeal of polyamory is that you know there really are totally different chemistries between people. And so you can be with someone and have something really, really precious and really remarkable and just sacred with that person. But there, you, you, you can have a relationship with someone else that has also wonderful things about it. And I, I've just never, I think that there's a mythology or, or, I mean, let me just say, I guess it, it can be this way for some people, but, but for me, it just doesn't seem like having intimacy with one person means that you can't have intimacy with someone else or that intimacy with someone else 
automatically like deflates or or detracts from the intimacy you're having with partner A. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. that's just never made sense to me. Yeah, like the idea of best friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, if, if everyone thinks about their friendship group, they'll know that that's that what you're saying is true. Because you know you don't really have best friends. You have moments where you have real chemistry with someone in a friendship in a moment, and then you go and you have another. You know, you go have another friendship with someone else, and they don't they don't knock each other. They don't they're not in competition. Exactly, and and you know it's, it's similar to say like have. I mean, it's a very 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 different kind of relationship. But children, you know, when you have people who have children, they might have one that. Oh, okay. If push came to shove, they'd have to admit that's my favorite. But yeah. that doesn't mean sure, that they people. don't have like a precious, precious, amazing relationship with each of their children. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is really true. And I think that 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 one of the reasons people are like, well, why are you so promiscuous? Don't you get tired <laughs> of all that? And the the answer is that. Yeah, I have a lot of sex that's kind of like, oh, that wasn't so great, or mm, I'm kind of disappointed that I went out of my way to like do that tonight. But then about once a month or you know so, I'll have an experience with someone where I'm like, wow, that was amazing, and it was like different than anything I've ever done before, or there was just some chemistry there between the two of us that was yeah. just that was just fascinatingly different than the chemistry that I'm used to having with other people, you know? So, so that's one of the reasons that I love, I think that we're hardwired. I think men and women are this way. Really. Everyone always thinks it's men, but I really think that we're all kind of hardwired to want variety because I think that, that actually way, way back in our species, Wanting to have sex with a lot of different kinds of people actually helped to make us a society. You know what I mean? <laughs> helped make us more social animals. It's so funny because people are, a lot of people frown upon the fact that I'll often have sex with a guy before getting to know him. And it's so interesting to me because what I say is I always feel like everyone's got it backwards. Like when I take off my clothes with someone and then have an encounter with them, I feel yeah. like that it, it is where I can establish how comfortable are we with each other in our own skin? How much like, how much can we drop masks and facades together and like play together on this primal level? And then if that really works out, then I'll be like, Hey, you want to get dinner sometime? Sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think you, you exchange different things through sex than you do through conversation, but they're no less profound or significant about each other. There's language covers up a lot. Body language covers up a lot of two, but they're, they're both different languages and they're both worth reading. Well, another thing is that I just feel that um, dating Dates, you know, like going going out and having dinner with someone after meeting them on OKCupid or something like that, it always feels like an audition to me. And it, it always feels yeah. like a situation in which it's almost impossible not to be wearing masks. And so I, there's, a, there's a part of me that's just very, very um, anxious about that whole process. You know, I want to get the masks off as soon as possible. <laughs> and, and I understand, like, there's some growing I have to do there. There's some, you know, hey, hey, calm down. Get a little bit more comfortable with just yeah. learning to be yourself without having to take all your clothes off. <laughs> 
yeah, maybe, maybe, but I still think there is some. There, there is also a, tr- a truth in what you're saying about about the way that that you can learn things through sex that you can't necessarily learn in general. Yeah, and I think, and and I, and I know what you mean about masks on when you when you go on dates. That's always been the thing that I found most uncomfortable about dates, uh, in my experience of them. Yeah. Have you read the book Sex at Dawn? Have you heard of that book by Christopher Ryan? I have read parts of the book, and I and I've listened to some of his uh, lecturing about it too. Yeah, I think that that's that's uh, really really fascinating, and I'm glad that that conversation is being had now about. Yeah, about, me too. Yeah. The way he puts it is really interesting. Where, where he'll say. I'm not coming out against monogamy. I'm not, you know, he's like, I'm not criticizing people for being monogamous. I'm just telling you, if you are monogamous, you should be informed. You should you should realize yeah. that there's this all this mythology around mon- monogamy being the only way to go. And the truth is, you're not really hardwired for it. You're choosing to kind of go against the grain of your species. So, you know... Don't necessarily feel like you're a total failure if you can't pull it off. And also, certainly don't feel like you're morally superior to people who are uh, like embracing the way we more naturally are. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm halfway through the book at the moment and I've I've heard him talking on on Savage Love with Dan Savage and I've heard him in a few few other places. He's got a podcast, actually. He's doing a conversation podcast called Tangentially Speaking. He'd be great on Risk. He's got some really interesting stories about uh, a lot of of things, uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Uh, he's, 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 He's done it all, I think. Oh, I should reach out to him. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool, actually. The last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? And I think we've most of our most of the the episode we've already been plugging risk. But one of the other things I wanted to talk about was about uh, teaching storytelling. So maybe you'd like to make that your plug, and then we can not add extra time in. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because really, very shortly after we started putting the podcast out there. Uh, I started getting emails from people saying things like, oh my gosh, I listened to this story and I feel like I'm not such a freak anymore. Or I feel like, oh my gosh, other people who have succeeded have been through even worse things than I'm going through now. You know, so there was almost immediately this sense of, oh, I'm on to something more profound than entertainment, you know, than than ordinary entertainment. Um, And... And I realized also that in my experience, you do continue to learn in a bigger way when you start to teach things or help people do what you're trying to master yourself. So I started teaching and I started this school called The Story Studio. It's at thestorystudio.org. And what it is is we have our we have a nine week class, and that is really kind of the the ultimate thing that we do like like about ten people would get together for nine weeks every week someone shares a new story at the end of it, we put on a show for friends and family, and it becomes like a kind of a love fest after yeah, a while sure. i mean it <laughs> becomes like you know group therapy, but fun. And then we also do like business workshops and one-on-one stuff. We do I do a lot of one-on-one stuff over Skype That's with right. people. So people yeah. who li- listen to uh, this podcast who might be from the UK can still reach out to you and have story sort of workshop for, via Skype. 
Yeah, and that is the most surreal thing. There will be, day, be days when I like wake up, it's like 9 in the morning, and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to work today. But I'll get on Skype, and someone will share a, a, a story from their life, and all of a sudden I'll feel like I myself feel more connected to humanity. You know, yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I run a storytelling night called uh, Spark London. I do an open mic night in, in Hackney in London, and uh, I find the same thing. Like, does, I might go to run that night in a kind of miserable mood or whatever, but as soon as people start getting up on stage and sharing stories about their life, like, it just, it just kind of, I don't know, it just does something to you, you know, whether, mm. whether like, whether they're similar or different from your experience, both are just fascinating. Absolutely, to yeah. 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 What's it like to teach people how to tell stories, though? How does one go about doing that? Well, I started to have to really pull apart and analyze and unpack what I saw as patterns in my own stories, what I saw. I mean, the teaching has really developed over time because I'm always trying to add to what I'm realizing, especially now that I'm teaching business workshops. I don't come from the business world. I don't have much of a corporate background at all. So it's fascinating to see how they have very specific needs. Like when they the, they have all, a lot of different kinds of stories they want to tell, like different genres of stories. And so it's it's been a learning experience just working with business people seeing, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. This person really wants to communicate this idea, this concept, or to persuade people of this, how can we juice this story up so that it's really like connecting? So, so yeah, the teaching itself has has developed over time. I think that the the difference between what I do and a lot of storytelling teachers that people other people tell me about is people are always telling me, "Oh, you gave me much more concrete." principles to follow. You gave me stuff that I can where I can literally work stuff out on like a worksheet of okay, am I am I doing this? Am I answering that? Have I included some of this so that, you know, it, it, it's a little bit more of a I know what things to apply. Whereas I think most storytelling teachers are just like, okay, everyone get up and tell a story and we'll all say how we felt about it. There's more lecturing on my part of, no, here's the nitty-gritty. Here's how to achieve that effect. Okay. This, this, yeah. this is making me feel nervous now about doing a story in a minute with you. I'm like, oh, no, am I going to hit the uh, criteria? Yeah. But uh, we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> Those came to you, I guess, through your experience of, in comedy. So you, you also teach improv and you have experience in improv. Have those two different disciplines fed into each other, do you Definitely. think? Definitely. Definitely. Just, just to be technical, um, I've, I teach sketch comedy, which is, slight, which is somewhat different than improv, but, but I have taken improv classes as well. And yes, those things definitely feed into each other because in sketch comedy, what you're doing is you're working with a scene and a scene has to do the exact same things usually that a story does. It has to be dramatic. It has to have a beginning and a middle and an end. It has to have a trajectory, a through line that has an emotional change going on in it. So, yeah, I definitely learned over the years just from creating scenes all the time, things that I now apply in storytelling. So, I mean, I guess... <clears throat> 
I don't know what's going on in my throat. I keep having this raspy throat. It really does, it really does my head in. Because all I, all I do is talk on mic and sing and stuff. And so I, all, the only thing I need to work is my throat. Right, right. And it's the only, the only thing that... Um, maybe I should smoke less. This probably is the, tr- the case. But anyway, I mean, there's a lot of people who smoke a lot who, who, who seem to be able to talk fine. So I don't know why I get the bum deal. We'll round this up now, but we're going to carry on, I guess, talking because we're going to do the story after. Right. But it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Kevin. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on my show. It's, it's, it's been really exciting for me to be talking to you because y- your show is kind of an, an inspiration to some of what I'm doing at the moment. Because, I mean, I've got these two two things that are going on in my life. Telling stories, true stories on stage and having in-depth conversations with people about their lives and about my life as well. It's really good to be speaking to someone who I think is doing it really well and to be kind of getting your knowledge from you sort of thing, or a little bit like a leech. <laughs> that's awesome that's great to hear thanks so much for doing this the last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience which is weird because we're going to carry on well thank you so much for having me it's been a thrill goodbye everybody so next week we have the GBA Christmas special which will be a story told by me, a true story told by me in long form about a Christmas that I spent a few years ago, quite a few years ago. And then we're going to take a week off. Yes, the annual one week off for Christmas. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's getting better acquainted have a search on facebook and like it or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on itunes and subscribing to us that way and on the stitcher smart radio app you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted I make a podcast about conversations and so that should suggest to you that I love conversations and I love real people's conversations, everyday people's conversations about their lives and their thoughts, the conversations that never get heard. Some of those conversations are getting heard though at the moment. There's this new project that I'd like to tell you about that my friend Jesse Levine from In The Dark is part of called The Listening Project. It's an ambitious new partnership between BBC Radio 4, BBC Local and National Radio Stations and the British Library. They are asking people up and down the country to share an intimate conversation with a close friend or relative to help build up a unique picture of our lives today. Some of these conversations will be broadcast across BBC Radio and archived by the British Library preserving them for future generations. BBC Radio producers have been gathering conversations from across the UK, covering everything from living with Alzheimer's to falling in love in the front seat of a Reliant Robin. And now they'd like you to record and share your own conversations. Perhaps you know someone with a fantastic story that you'd love them to share with the world. There may be something that you've always wanted to discuss with someone close to you, or maybe you just like to celebrate happy moments in your life or reflect on memories of a dearly departed friend. What you talk about is completely up to you. 
This project is about creating space for you and a loved one to have the conversation you always meant to have. By taking part, you'll also have the chance to be a part of history. You can choose to submit your conversation to the British Library, who may add it to their permanent audio archive. Don't worry if you've never recorded anything before. They've written a simple step-by-step guide on their website. All you need is a computer, a laptop, camera or phone with a microphone. And believe me, if I can record a conversation, you can record a conversation. Find out more about The Listening Project by typing The Listening Project into Google or by going to bbc.co.uk slash radio4 slash features slash the hyphen listening hyphen project and it will take you through how to record your conversations I really think recording conversations is a valuable thing it's valuable for you and it's valuable for the people who listen so why not be a part of this really excellent project <laughs>